Welcome to Beer Stories for Private Equity. Join us for our weekly happy hour, tapping into 27 years of PE experience, one pint at a time. Beer Stories for Private Equity is powered by Monogram Group. Today we're honored to have John Fruward as our first guest. And for Monogram Group, here's your host, Scott Markman. Please fasten your seatbelts. Thanks for turning into Beer Stories for Private Equity, Episode 1. The first guest we're pleased to be joined by is John Fruworth, Managing Partner of Rotunda Capital Partners. John founded the firm back in 2009, has been partnering with lower middle market companies for over 20 years. John's been a friend for many years, and we both share a love-hate relationship with the Baltimore Ravens. Beer Stories of Private Equity is powered by Monogram Group. At any point in this podcast, you can check out the show notes in the description of this episode for additional resources, useful links, and our podcast email. If you have any questions or suggestions, let us know. This is our first episode, so if you're interested, please consider subscribing so that you can know when we release new episodes. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold for five seconds. I have my next question teed up before I do. Ready? Uh, uh, you know, we are <laughs> stories, and I need a beer. There you go. So, you know, I want to live by our principles. This is a fine New Belgium Mountain Time premium lager um, for those marketing people from New Belgium who are listening. Anyway, um, so we're going to spend our time today really talking about e- your career and the firm, right? That's going to be the editorial kind of arc of this. Okay. So it, just share with me and our listeners, um, you know, kind of your origin story, starting with me, college, MBA, whatever, and why did you get into private equity and why did you decide to start your own firm? Well, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me today. And uh, in terms of an origin story, I grew up all over the country, but ended uh, high school in outside of Milwaukee. Yeah, I ended up, uh, oddly enough, working uh, for a oil company, Conoco, out of undergrad for a couple of years. Uh, so I knew I needed to do something different and went back to business school. Um, uh, had the opportunity to go to the uh, University of Virginia, the Darden School, and was there. And once I graduated, went into investment banking uh, in, a, in a small fledgling bank down in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, did that for a couple of years and switched over to leverage lending. And that was really my first exposure to private equity and what an LBO was and how it all worked. Um, and I got amazing credit training. Uh, that I'm, you know, As I look back now, 25 years later, I really am thankful for the credit training that I received. You, you were, this was uh, First Union, uh, the, the old bank that became Wells Fargo. North Carolina? Uh, uh, what's that? Were they out of North Carolina? Yeah, Charlotte. Yeah, we were based there. First Union became Wachovia, became Wells. Um, over the years. And so I, I went from leverage lending to a group that we did everything up and down the right side of the balance sheet, which was a special group within the in the bank, which was really a cool opportunity. It was three MDs. I was a VP. I had a couple junior people and we did seven deals in one year and I worked uh, nonstop, but it was amazing training. Um, and then I had an opportunity in 2003 to join Allied Capital, which at the time was you know a, a publicly traded BDC business development company that had been around for 50 years. I lived in the uh, Chicago suburbs from 03 to 05. I met my partner, Corey, socially at that time. Yep. Uh, and then just hold that. And then uh, for a minute, um, I moved to D.C. with Allied and met my partners, Bob and Dan. The three of us worked as a deal team together. 
And then, uh, so we started our Rotunda Capital journey in 2009, late 2008, early 2009. We did our first deal in 2009. Um, and then uh, we were off to the races. Uh, at that time, it was not going to be feasible to raise a fund. So for the next decade, in over 12 different deals, uh, we were an independent sponsor, or some people call them fundless sponsors, right? And uh, it really was raising money deal by deal. I call it the three ring circus, you know, find the deal, diligence the deal, raise the money um, at the same time. And there were many good things about that, but it was also hard. Um, so I mean, it's, it's just, hang on a sec. I mean, that's a bit of a slog. I mean, most firms don't choose to be a fundless sponsor for 12 years. Yeah. So yeah, it was 10 years, 12 deals. It was, but there, there were a lot of great things about being an independent sponsor. We got to do what we wanted. You could sit and wait for fastball middle. Um, you didn't have the headaches of managing people. You didn't report to anyone else. So, you know, there are, there are pros and cons to it. I think ultimately, uh, two things really drove us to go to the funded route, which was one, uh, we saw that there was more opportunity to improve the businesses in which we were investing. And that was going to require more internal team and payroll and so forth. And then, and then secondly, we would spend sometimes months working on a transaction only to have the owner of this family founder business say, well, I've got you and I have Scott and Scott has a fund and you don't, and he'll just, he'll for sure have the money. So I'm going to go with him, even though you're probably the better buyer. And that's pretty disappointing. And so we just kind of got tired of that story. Um, so in 2019, um, we raised our first institutional fund, which was ended up being $196 million. Um, and we told the investors at the time it was likely to be a fairly concentrated fund, meaning six to eight investments ultimately ended up being six. Uh, we got through that uh, re fairly rapidly. And then last year, uh, in 2020, June of 2022, we closed on the second institutional fund, uh, which was 405 million. So you've, you've developed, um, you know, something loosely called the Rotunda way. You've got some principles that I'm imagining you've honed over that period of time when you've you know, you were, you were an independent sponsor, you did stuff, you found out what you believed in, what worked, what didn't, and what you were good at executing. So let's talk about that for a second, the, the pillars of that kind of rotunda way. Yeah, it's interesting. We, uh, when Bob, Dan, and I started the firm in, in 20, late 2008 to 2010, as the three of us were coalescing, and then Corey joined us in 2013, uh, one of the things that we put together, what were our core values and how do we think about what it meant to work at Rotunda, what it meant to be, how do we interface with others? What's interesting is while those felt genuine and real, and they are real and genuine, I did not understand or appreciate how that set of core values would resonate in the future uh, years and years later with potential owners of businesses. I can't tell you how many times uh, that we go to talk to a new potential uh, portfolio company and the owner says, I love the fact you have core values. Uh, you know, ours are partnership integrity, transparency, and excellence. And before we even get into talking about the business or who Rotunda is, they said, well, why did you pick, you know, transparency? And what does that mean to you? It's funny because we use that word too. And already we're bonding over core values. So I think that's the first thing is um, you know, sort of accidentally, while it was important to us to start with core values, it's turned out to be uh, with family founders, which is the only types of businesses we've ever invested in, to be a really starting, uh, interesting starting point. You know, secondly, I would say the family founder businesses are all idiosyncratic. Each is a snowflake. Um, it could be uh, one generation transferring to the other. It could be multiple siblings and who's doing what. Uh, it can be someone that is the original entrepreneur that wants to grow the business, doesn't, you know, knows that they don't have the means or skill set to do it, but wants to still roll and own a significant stake. 
So each one of these, uh, my point on this is listening. It's, it's absolutely critical as you go through the process of meeting these entrepreneurs, listening to what's important to them. They're all terrified of private equity. They've heard the shark stories about how private equity comes in and ruins the culture and, and whatnot. And these people care deeply about their employees, about their customers, their suppliers, and they know they can grow and they know that they can be better, but they also don't want to destroy what's made FirmX really wonderful. So I think it's important to listen and try and suss out what their real objectives are. Um, and I think, I think that last piece is we would never do a deal where the family or founder type person wanted to just go to the beach and get as much money as they possibly could and go to the nicest beach that they possibly could. That's, that's not interesting to us. So I want to dovetail that with something that really stood out for me when we worked together and we did the, you know, the brand work for Rotunda, which is what I call your spaghetti map. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen it like it before or since, but it's like this, uh, it purposeful, a little, a little slightly tongue in cheek, but purposeful map of reality. And I want you to talk about that because it's, it's always stood out to me as like, this guy is just putting reality on the table in the way many folks in your seat don't. Since this is a beer podcast, we'll talk about case grade, less filling. You kind of got to decide which one you like. Um, we did neither and we muddled along until we realized if you tried to be all things to all people, you're, you're nothing to no one as the cool goes. And so the strategy map, as you refer to it, and there's an example on the website, uh, was a consequence of that. And so we call it the who cares test is where we start. Uh, what we asked the entrepreneur and what we're desperately trying to figure out during diligence is why does this company exist? And if they went out of business tomorrow, who would care and why? And if you can really articulate that crisply. Um, many entrepreneurs are not clear about it, right? They've been in business 20, 30, 60 years, one, two, three generations. You know, they make a lot of money. That's great. But then, you know, they'll, we'll ask them, why do you guys exist? Oh, we have great service, lots of locations, uh, deep inventory, on and on and on. They'll give you six or seven things. And that's not really the answer, right? There's usually one or two reasons that a customer buys from you and they're not crisp on that. So that's the first thing we use the strategy map to hone in on. Then the next part of the strategy map is uh, really understanding that we think that financials are the tail, not the dog. And so we think that too many private equity firms, and having been a lender, we've sat in countless boardrooms with many other private equity firms. They roll in, they ask how the quarter go, how was revenue, how was gross margin. Honestly, that's like the tail. That's if you've done the right things upstream, I'm not not the the driver. Totally right. So so if you want to increase sales, let's not have a conversation like, hey, you should double sales. Well, well, no kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the right answer is, okay, if it takes 100 sales calls to make a sale, either we improve the efficacy, so it's 50 to 1, or you've got to do 200 if you're going to do two sales, right? And so which way are we going to tackle sales growth? Or it's not just enough to say, hey, raise your gross margin. Let's give you some tools to dig into how you're procuring, um, how you're pricing your product, right? And so you can learn to drive your gross margin through the upstream activities that result in the downstream financials. And then lastly is the customer voice in there and really understanding, again, maybe it's net promoter scores, maybe it's some extensive customer surveying, why they're really buying from you. And so that's the start of it. Then the, the spaghetti, as you talk about on the, the circles on our strategy map, this is over the result of a two to four day session with the management team in which they start to articulate you know, how they're going to build the house. If they're $100 million in revenue with $10 million of EBITDA when we buy it and we want to be $40 million of EBITDA in three or four years, what's going to have to change? Right. What's let's let's future state look at what need, the company is going to look like, and then back it up in in year increments, and around business processes, around building organizational capabilities, around customer voice. Right. 
what are the things we need to do? And then ultimately on the far right side of the strategy map, it's the tactical steps you need to do. The other thing that I, I took away from, you know, our working, you know, to articulate the strategy map, how important it was to your firm was that it was an acknowledgement that this is a little messy. It's not a clean, straight line. And that, you know, I, I don't want to say it's one step backwards or so it's forwards, but it's just, it's, you know, there's going to be ups and downs, bumps and bruises. So along those lines, is there an interesting anecdote across your deals where we can kind of go, boy, the you know what was going to hit the fan? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what we uh, talked about and, and responded with. And, you know, it was a happy ending. Anything come to mind? Uh, yeah, I've got two, two comments, right? Um, that one, I'll start with that because it relates was the taste great, less filling. Um, what happened is then because we weren't clear, we took on a customer that was uh, much larger than our capacity to handle that customer. Our systems weren't built for it. Our people weren't trained for it. And it was, a, it was an e-commerce logistics business, so warehouses around the country. Uh, we put them into our largest warehouse. We blew up that warehouse, so to speak, operationally which then caused us to get into financial distress, which then caused us to get, you know, spend two years working it out with the lenders, all because had we been clear up front about, hey, this is a great customer and you can make money, but it's not the right customer for us, right? Um, now, ultimately that deal took us seven and a half years and we made nearly three times our money, that's great, but that was a really long slog. And like I said, most things in life, like the strategy map come out of that circumstance. The other, the other example I would give you is uh, right out of uh, right out of business school, I was working on a high yield bond offering, and uh, and the uh, head of high yield said to me, who had a deep credit training, he said, "Look, John, it's great to think about all these esoteric risks, but the thing that usually kills you is the thing you can see, right? It's customer concentration, uh, so on and so forth." Um, we did a deal where, and I'm not going to use the company's names. Um, a preeminent consumer name in this country, everyone would know on this podcast. Um, we were able to team up with them and provide a product that they weren't currently providing. And unfortunately, it never in a million years occurred to me uh, that uh, that that firm with a stellar uh, customer reputation in the marketplace um, would have done something at high levels that basically caused them to get out of you know out of control and out of compliance with their regulators. Um, thick financial services. And as a consequence, they shut down all new initiatives of which our investment was supporting one of those brand new initiatives. Oh, to the converse. Um, anything that ended up happening that was so far beyond your wildest dreams, you know, you, you're thoughtful, you execute, you measure all this stuff. And you just didn't even see this crazy success. Um, you, in, in spite of, you know, kind of your collective efforts. It was like two, three X beyond what your wildest dreams. Any, any stories like that? Yeah, we, we, uh, on the deal side, we, we've been very fortunate. We've had some amazing outcomes. Um, you know, that is a combination really of the management teams working exceptionally hard, our deal teams, uh, supporting them, uh, our operations teams as well. Um, but the, I would say a, a little bit different one. Uh, I, I would actually say raising the first fund. Um, I think it's like a lot of entrepreneurial activities and that raising a fund is certainly entrepreneurial in that regard. I think if you knew how hard things were, uh, you probably wouldn't start. And so um, the, our first fund took us about 18 months to raise. It took over 200 meetings. Um, and so, yeah, 200 initial meetings. And, um, you know, and, and, and there, while we had a great story, there were things we certainly could have done better. I think that the lessons I took away from that are humility right? And perseverance. Um, 
you know, you and I are both Ravens fans and, you know, relentless is one of their taglines and you had to be relentless. And the partners and I had, had talked about, okay, we're going to make this transition from independent sponsor to funded sponsor. Yep. And I said, guys, this is a one-way door to use the Amazon quote, right? You know, a two-way door, you can make a decision. If it doesn't quite work out, you can back up and go back through the door. You know, one-way door is a door in which you step through it and it closes behind you. Or it's akin to, you know, rowing the boat up on a shore, burning it to the water line and then heading inland. And I said, that's the mindset we have to take. If we're going to start raising this fund, we cannot fail, right? And we're going to do whatever it takes. So I would say... Um, when that fund closed, it was really a, a proud and successful moment, I mean, not just for me, not just for the partners, but for the firm. Um, the investors that that took the shot with us and invested in us, were, they were really investing in Rotunda as a business. They were really assessing the overall team and some of our teammates from, you know, Rohit and Rona and, you know, Ellen and not and on. And I think that they saw that, you know, this is a really good team that, you know, is learning to be a funded sponsor but someone that we can get behind and back. And I'm very thankful those LPs took a, took a chance on us and continue to support us today. You know, what's, what's so great to sort of even, I know you well, I know you're for a while, but just to even to hear this story and how you describe it. And, and I think to myself, you know, your uh, career and story arc with the firm is akin to mine and ours. I'm in year 34 and this is my life's work. Clearly rotund is your life's work and you treat it that way. And, and it's just bloody obvious. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, you're dug in, take it seriously. There's a lot of pride involved and you, you know, you, you celebrate the highs and you, you know, you lick your woes and lows and, you know, all of that stuff. And it's, so there's an entrepreneurial story to running your firm that, you know, again, I don't hear that often in the world of private equity. It tends to be a little bit above that kind of mindset. And I just hear that coming out of you just very genuinely. Yeah, I'm. I'm just very thankful for the team. I mean, I look back at some of our first hires, and I'm. I'm sometimes amazed, right? They took a shot on us, coming out of top tier business schools, and they're going to join this fledgling, you know, firm. And and it's really worked out. And I think, you know, it does. It's never lost on me that two things. One, um, the LPs on, on which we for whom we invest, right? There's teachers, and there's firemen, and there's policemen. There's real people. There's real retirement plans. Uh, and we have a strong fiduciary duty to those people to to try and perform to the best of our ability. And secondly, I would say to my team members, I mean, I it, it's never lost on me. Um, these people are trusting me to you know help grow the firm in a way that they can see, be successful in their careers. But they're trusting us with their mortgage payments, car payments, school payments, vacations, baby shoes, you know. And you know, it's it's humbling to find a, a you know have assembled a bunch of people on a team that really works at a high level. Um, you know, we have really kind of a no um, bickering or no backbiting type of a culture. Uh, people are incredibly supportive. Um, I just had a really touching moment. We had our first uh, woman go out on maternity leave. I've got several moms that work for us, but but the first uh, first first time mom, and totally uh, without guidance or direction from anyone uh, at the partner level, all the junior people sat down with this woman, uh, broke apart what it is that she was doing. Uh, each of them took tasks so that while she was gone for 90 days, everything was still going to get done. They just did it themselves. And that's very much the culture that, you know, we row together and we win together. And these people just picked up the ball and ran with it. I loved it. It really, it really was awesome to see. You know, the, the core, the core principle in monogram group is when it's a team, lose a team. Yeah. Up, totally. Uh, you know, you don't have to repeat it. It's just, it's either obvious in how people act to make decisions and 
allocate time and whatever or that don't. And if anybody is not sort of adhering to that, then they're sort of told stick to the, stick to the script. It's really simple. We had a funny interview process. Uh, the, this young man uh, did really well um, on Zoom and in, on, on phone. And we brought him in in person and I interviewed him and something just didn't feel quite right. And every person after me uh, in 30 minute increments walked out of my office and said, I can't quite put my finger on it, but this doesn't feel right. And it was awesome because none of us could quite identify it, but all of us knew it. Um, and so he wasn't the right fit for us. I'm sure he's done really well elsewhere, but you've got to be true to your culture and what works for you. Um, and, and interview very carefully to make sure that you're selecting the good apple. Awesome. Well, uh, we are almost out of time and I want to make sure that we carve out our two minutes on our favorite subject, which is the upcoming NFL season. Then we'll get to the real stuff, which is the Ravens. Okay. But the, the one thing, if you ever read, there's a book uh, out about the Ravens and training camp and it's entitled Next Man Up. Yes. It's one of the reasons I love the Ravens is there's no whining about, well, the left tackle got hurt or this didn't happen. It's just next man up, you know, zip it and get on with it, which is what you have to do in business, right? That that relentless quote I said before, that's, I hang that flag of that little Ravens thing. I framed it from years ago. It sits in my office. It's an adage for, for a rotunda. It's an adage for a football team. It's an adage for anyone that wants to be successful. You have to be relentless in the pursuit of excellence and relentless in the pursuit of, op- uh, in, in, in the face of adversity, quite frankly. I, you know, again, I, I live in Chicago, I live to 35 years. And so I have this kind of interesting perspective to compare contrast the Ravens as an organization, as a business, as a culture, all that stuff with the Bears. And while I love the Bears, I am not a huge fan of the family that owns them. And I think that they are not skilled at a lot of things. And one of them is culture. And one of them is frankly, you know, the checkbook. And it just play, it plays out in outcomes across the board. And in the last, what, 20 years, how many times have Ravens been awful? The answer is like a handful. Right. And, you know, we're disappointed when they're 500. You know, I, how many years have I lived here where the Bears have been like, you know, three and 13? <laughs> Just a, it's like night and day. And, you know, I, I take pride in the Ravens doing things the right way in terms of putting the managing the long-term, putting the product on the field, putting the players in the best position to succeed. Whatever happens, happens. But, you know, long-term, it's great to be their fan. All right. Sir, thank you so much. This was just an absolute pleasure. You and I hit it out of the park, I hope. And I hope that our listeners all agree. Thank you very much, John. We'll see you around. From all of us at Monogram Group, thanks for listening to our first episode of Beer Stories for Private Equity. Please hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as new Beer Stories episodes are released. Don't forget to check out the show notes for a quick episode recap. And if you have any questions or recommendations on future episodes, please email us at podcast at monogramgroup.com.